FX medicine is evolving. As we continue to grow, it's important to us that we remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert you want to hear from, let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Instagram. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us again today is Kate Holm, who's a naturopath, nutritionist, speaker and previous lecturer who recently took on her most important and exciting role as a mum. And today we'll be discussing kids' neurobehavioural issues. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Kate, how are you going? Good, thank you so much for having me again. An absolute pleasure. Now. Being not only a mum, but also a soon-to-be mum again, um, how did you become confident in dealing with neurobehavioural issues in kids? Because they're quite mm. complex, quite demanding. Yeah, complex and demanding, yes, but there's actually a lot of simple underlying work that you can do that can help to build your confidence if you are still learning. And to be honest, I have to say that my first exposure to working with children and seeing just how quickly things can change was while I was a student and I was also working as a nanny. Yeah. Um, I was with one particular family, I nannied for many families over the years, but this particular family had um, a daughter who was showing signs of Tourette's and she had um, quite a lot of, you know, behavioural issues and tantrums and meltdowns and all those sorts of things. And I was there, you know, learning what I was learning at college, but, you know, employed by this family, not in that capacity. So kind of biting my tongue around the foods that they were eating and some of the practices that they had within the family. And one day the mum asked me what I thought and if there was anything that um, I would explore from a natural therapies point of view. And I think I must have been maybe in second year, possibly still in my first year of college. So with my very, very limited knowledge, I suggested that the family trial a gluten and dairy free diet with their daughter. And the impact was so profound that it actually had me questioning, like, was that actually what did the trick? And it wasn't until they trialed her back on it actually turned out to be dairy that was the biggest issue for her and she would go from having fairly well-maintained balanced like very very lovely behavior to having even something as small as a small sliver of birthday cake or the mum was actually giving her milo in a milk alternative not realizing that there's milk solids in milo and go from zero to a hundred almost instantly. So it became really evident how much food was affecting her behavior. And that was without any supplementation, any, you know, really thorough investigation or any other intervention. So I think for me, that was sort of the starting point of realizing, hey, there's actually a lot that can be done with these families. And from there, I mean, I've always loved working with children in that capacity at that point in time that I think um, I'm kind of of the nature where I just jump right in and 
obviously not be like reckless, but um, trust that I will have the skills and I will have the knowledge available to me and, and to also know where to seek that out when you do come up against things that you're uncertain about. So yeah, to answer your question, I think that's how I got confident. I just made a start. Well, it was from an early positive outcome. Yeah. But you, were, you had this very lucky position that to be employed as a nanny so obviously mm. I'm going to assume that they're a higher socioeconomic standing and had the availability and the choice of, of various food groups. Um, mm. and, and dare I say the knowledge. Um, I don't know what knowledge they had. So did they find that the changes that you were espousing, did they find those changes easy to implement? Um, not initially, no. And despite them having like definitely a high level of education, it's really interesting, I think, when you get to step inside families in that capacity, having that level of education doesn't always correlate with, um, you know, good nutritional practices or good sort of family dynamic and lifestyle practices. So, yeah, it wasn't necessarily easy and especially, and I find this often with kids that sometimes the very foods that they're craving are the foods that are setting them off. So when you've got a child whose behaviour is already difficult to navigate, trying to take away some of their favourite things can be really, really big. And that's so daunting for parents. So yeah, I don't know that it was easy, but the results were so quick. I'm talking within a matter of weeks that there was at least enough change to inspire them to keep going um, that I think everybody could see, you know, it was making the household more calm. It was making school drop-offs and pick-ups and all those sorts of things easier so it becomes worthwhile to push through the you know the bits that are a bit challenging because you're getting such a positive result. You, you said something earlier that really interests me and that is um, the cravings so mm. some people will say you know you crave what you're allergic to others will say you crave what you need for yeah. instance <laughs> magnesium around the time of a period is yeah. potentially because of the high magnesium, sorry, chocolate around the time chocolate. of the food is because of the high magnesium content. Um, when is it an allergy and well, is it, when is it what you need? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's both. I really do see both. And I feel that kids probably, because in some ways, like, yes, their presentation can be a lot more complex, but they tend to have less layers than we do as adults. Mm -hmm. Not always, that's a generalisation, but you sort of can see more clearly either end of the spectrum. Um, and sometimes it's the, a bit of trial and error, short of doing a million tests on a small person, which I like to avoid where possible. But I do really think it's both. Sometimes our body is very intuitive and it knows what it needs and we should go with that intuition. But if that intuition is to be binging on milo for example or you know excessive amounts of like i don't think we could say that some of the milk chocolate brands are high in magnesium really <laughs> then i think perhaps we need to acknowledge that it's something else going on and it is a bit of a chicken and egg situation where is it the cravings that are potentially driving changes in gut microbes and therefore perpetuating the cycle of cravings? Or is it a different microbial composition that's then driving us to eat certain foods? And that's definitely something else to consider in everybody, but particularly in kids with the um, sort of neurodevelopmental or behavioral issues. Right. So potentially it could be something that they need because they are craving it. They are almost addicted to it in these instances, like the caseomorphins and the, the, the glute, gluteomorphins. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, but what I think is interesting is um, that mo many, I'll say, naturopaths would choose wheat avoidance as the first thing over dairy. You found mm -hmm. dairy. Have you ever have you ever looked mm -hmm. at which one's got a greater preponderance, and have you ever tried avoiding both? Uh, I would most often try avoiding both because I find, I mean, particularly when we're thinking about um, autism spectrum disorders and if we look at the research around diet, there is great success for that gluten and casein-free diet. So I actually find it easier personally, well, not easier necessarily for the family, but a better starting place if we can get rid of both, to get rid of both, and then you can always trial that reintroduction. But I think I'm stealing Mark Donahoe's um, analogy again, the boat with five anchors. So if you take out the dairy, and it's also the gluten, then you're not necessarily going to see the full effect of removing that dairy because you've still got something else weighing it down. So I think it's really important to actually start with both and possibly start with doing some food sensitivity testing if the food does seem to be a big issue so that you can get that really clean slate and obviously not with the intention in every instance of staying off foods forever, but then at least you can see which food is having which effect rather than kind of having this murky, maybe not really a response at all. So yeah, I'd be inclined to do both. Right. With regards to food sensitivity testing, there's a lot of contention over how accurate it is. How yeah. accurate do you find it? It's going to depend hugely on the lab that you use. So I think it's really important to do some investigation. I mean, there's so many tests available and just because we can test something doesn't mean that we necessarily should or that the information that we're getting is usable or accurate. So it's important to ask the questions, look at some research, speak to all of the different labs if you're feeling you know, confused or not sure where to, to go. Um, I'm very fortunate that in my early years of practice, I was also working for one of the functional testing companies. So I did get to look quite closely at that data and understand a lot more about what was coming out of the labs and maybe what wasn't coming out of other labs. Um, so with food sensitivity testing, I mean, there's so many ways that you can go about it. And a lot of parents are accessing um, just sort of commercially available tests now as well, which I'd really encourage them not to do because yes, you might be able to buy it on Groupon or whatever, and it's $50, but is that necessarily going to give you usable information or are you going to start avoiding foods that are unnecessary for your child or family to do so? And um, the development, which is what you're trying to combat, isn't it? Yeah, um, exactly. And often these children can be picky eaters as well. So mm -hmm. you don't necessarily want to be taking more off their plate. And I think it's finding that sort of tipping point where you're getting progress and you're leaving them with, foods that they will actually eat because it's every parent's worst nightmare that by changing their child's diet, particularly if we're thinking about children on the spectrum who can be quite particular, that they'll just go hungry and not end up eating anything. So it's, yeah, it is quite a fine balance. Um, I do feel confident in some of the testing that's available. And I think also working with um, or looking at the families support team and who else they're seeing so if they're working with a pediatrician i might be more inclined to do like just an igg test because there is some literature that's 
often well accepted by pediatricians and they can sort of see the merit there. Um, there's definitely some more naturopathic tests available, which I actually find to be really, really useful. Mm -hmm. However, I would never want that to cross the desk of a pediatrician because they'll say, stop seeing that naturopath. She's made you waste your money. So I think it's really important to, yeah, kind of navigate all of those moving pieces um, and just speak really openly with the families as well about the limitations of the testing because no test is perfect but some testing may move us in the right direction so that we can start to see what the next layer is that needs to be peeled back one of the other issues i find is is that people see a nail and so they turn into a hammer um, yeah. so they see a list a whole massive list of foods which you are allergic to or sensitive to and so it's avoidance rather than asking the question mm -hmm. why are you reacting to this absolutely so, so where then do we intercede where's your best bet on intercedence so i feel i mean when there's a food issue and when we're seeing you know there's antibodies show up in the blood then for me that food does need to come out for a period of time, but I always, always, always preface that this is not a long-term thing. For the testing that I'm doing mostly, we're not looking at that IgE mediated response. So it's not a true allergy. It's more that food sensitivity. And often that comes back to gut permeability and the fact that these food proteins are able to get into the bloodstream in a form that's not appropriate, it's not well enough digested. So hence the immune system jumps on it and mounts that response. So the problem isn't actually the food itself. The problem is that intestinal permeability and the fact that you need to be doing some healing there. But until you take out that aggravating factor, you can't actually get to do maybe some healing, but not sufficient healing in order to get that really long-term change. So I think it's definitely prefacing that with patients because I have seen many families who've possibly been to other practitioners or they've done testing themselves and thought, okay, well, this is a food allergy and now we can never eat it. Not realizing that having such a restricted diet in itself can actually be problematic. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, do you employ simple things like, you know, the demulcents, the, the mucilaginous um, agents, the slipiums, that sort of thing? Do you employ, uh, you know, proteins like the, the um, let's start with glutamine, but the, uh, what do you yeah. call it? Um, amino acids? Yeah, um, branch chain amino acids, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> do, you do you employ um, BCAAs and glutamine? Or, or even, you know, rice protein powders, things like that to help settle the gut down at all? Yeah, sometimes. So I'd say probably the thing that I often move to um, first, and it's a really, really simple thing to introduce, is inulin. So really good prebiotic. And I have to say I didn't steal it. I learnt it from um, the Nemchek protocol. And I don't know how much I like essentially, are you familiar with that no, protocol? Please. Okay. So, um, Dr. Nemchek, I apologize. I couldn't remember his first name, but essentially has a protocol for um, autism spectrum disorders. And it's largely focused around fish oil and inulin um, as the main interventions. And he gives a really good analogy around how the inulin works and essentially talks about um, how we have in the small intestines our birds so the you know the microbes that are supposed to be there and they're the birds and in the large intestines we have the fish and sometimes when we get this dysbiosis it's because the fish 
have moved up into the sky and they're now with the birds where they're not supposed to be. Yeah. Um, I thought that was quite cute and easy to explain to patients. And essentially what the inmulin does from his account is that it helps to feed the birds and push the fish back down into the ocean. Um, and I've actually found it to be a really successful intervention in starting to get some sort of microbial balance. And maybe it's not the only thing that we call on, but it's fairly palatable. You can pop it into mm. a smoothie or into almost anything that a child is already eating without them noticing that it's there. Cause that can be a really big thing with kids who are a bit picky um, and start to yet yeah, refeed those organisms that we want to stick around without feeding the guys that we don't necessarily want there. Um, in terms of using like amino acids and glutamine, definitely I would use them. Um, I'm, I love herbs, so I'm very much inclined to go for the demulsin. So like you mentioned, like your marshmallow root or licorice. Um, I love slippery elm, but it is endangered. So I try to use it sparingly where possible and instead go for something like the inulin um, or the marshmallow, which would have a similar effect. Um, but yeah, I do think there's some simple things you can do like that, that again, thinking about children who are potentially on the spectrum or who maybe are just like not that compliant or um, we're dealing with, yeah, these behavioral issues. It has to be easy for everyone. It has to taste okay. Um, and okay. it has to also give you some sort of effect pretty quickly to keep people on board. What about side effects? I mean, early on there was, you know, talk, um, uh, I think it was quite large, 40% of people taking inulin, they got excess wind. Mm. Now, part of me says if wind is the worst thing you're going to get yeah. and it's and it seems to be transient um yeah. then you know handle it and move on sort of thing but yeah. you know add adhd asd kids mm. have a really mucked up milieu of of bacteria and other bugs in their gut so um how does it work with the clostridials you know mm. prevalence of that um taxa so definitely like if you go in too much too soon you can absolutely cause people some problems and i would agree that it's this transient kind of discomfort that in children who are really really hypersensitive then that discomfort is not just oh, i've got a bit of gas i'll deal with it it can be hugely problematic so i'm and i i think i'm probably more conservative with my dosing around, you know, herbs and supplements anyway to begin with. But sometimes I'd be starting like an eighth of a teaspoon once a day and then just seeing how people go. Because oftentimes when you're getting that, you know, big reaction and, and as you're starting to feed, you know, the beneficial microbes, there can be a bit of gas production. But if you go low and slow enough, um, you can often sort of mitigate that and, I think, again, it's just prefacing it with families that, okay, maybe you're going to get a little bit more windy, but it shouldn't last for too long. And if it does, let me know and we'll change course because the last thing I want is for people to be suffering these side effects or to just ditch everything completely. Right. So just staying in that constant communication. Um, and often that is needed with these families and, you know, setting up your personal and professional boundaries around that, yeah. but being a little bit more available and understanding that things can change for them quite quickly. And there often is a lot of anxiety and a lot of family dynamics that you're trying to navigate. So, um, yeah, I think communication is probably key. Okay, so what sort of time uh, range do you give for something to work before you go, 
and uh, this isn't working. Do you, do you give it like a, a month or so or six weeks, eight oh, weeks? Gosh, it's so hard to say because it depends a lot on the age of the child. It depends a lot on the past health history of the child. Depends on like how many factors you're potentially considering are there. And often, I guess, um, I guess I'm thinking about the more severe children and you've got to pick sort of that lowest hanging fruit. So you're doing one thing, but you might have five other, other things in your mind that you want to be working on. So I would say that families can see change anywhere from fairly immediately, but sometimes it is more like six months that you need to be persisting and not necessarily chopping and changing everything along yeah. the way. Yeah. But in actual fact, it can just take that long for you know, inflammation to settle both within the gut and in the brain for that kind of biochemistry to normalize, whether that's in terms of nutrient assimilation or, um, you know, neurotransmitter production or whatever it might be. So there's definitely no hard and fast rule. Um, but also I think setting that expectation with families early on and asking them the question, like, how long are you thinking this is going to take? And oftentimes people have been in a chronic state of just like uncertainty and trying to get a diagnosis and trying to get somewhere with their children that they don't actually have the expectation that it's going to change overnight because they've been living it for, you know, maybe months, maybe years. So I think that, yeah, while it's amazing when you can see things change quite quickly and that's definitely possible, it's, often okay if it doesn't change so rapidly and I would really encourage practitioners to stick with what they're doing because if you know that you know you've got a, an intention and a purpose behind what you're doing short of it obviously causing side effects or you thinking actually maybe I've not hit the mark um, sometimes it does just take that little bit of perseverance to get the change you're after. Now you and I have spoken before about testing and not not wanting to um, involve invasive tests. But yeah. what about non-invasive tests like stool analyses or mm -hmm. um, intestinal permeability tests? Do you employ them, and where? How often do you retest, mm. keeping in mind the costs that are involved? I mean, yeah. some of the stool tests are extraordinarily expensive. Yeah, I would retest very infrequently, to be honest. Um, if a family wants to, then absolutely. Like if they're willing to spend the money, they want to see that change on paper, then sure, let's go ahead and do a retest. But usually I'm using that testing as a starting point to narrow my focus so that I can know where to best, you know, spend our energy and supplementation and diet changes and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of really non-invasive tests that you can do for children. And I'm talking from babies upward. So definitely stool testing is something that I would do fairly frequently with this group of the population. Mm -hmm. um, food sensitivity testing, as I mentioned, but keeping in mind that an antibody test isn't really going to be effective for children until they're two years of age. So you're kind of limited if you've got kids below that age group. Um, the other one that I really love is the organic acids test. And I find that it almost, it's like it's giving you a, a zoomed out snapshot of all the systems in the body. So again, you can decide, okay, do we need to go in and do heavy metal testing or do we need to go in and do stool testing or some other sort of testing based on what's coming out of that, even though it's not necessarily giving specifics in terms of like, yes, you've got XYZ organism or you've got XYZ heavy metal. So 
that's a really good um, yeah, snapshot that you can do. And that's just a urine test. Um, they do have pediatric collection kits, so you can use it inside a child's nappy if they're still wearing nappies. Um, what other testing would I do? I really try to avoid blood tests where I can, but if you've got a child who has rapidly deteriorated or has really severe symptoms, then sometimes it is necessary to actually do that. And I find lots of kids are okay with it. And it's mm -hmm. typically the parents who are a little bit more concerned. Um, obviously, depending if you've got a child who's maybe got a lot more sensory issues or is quite severely you know on the spectrum then it might not be quite as achievable for them but children who are perhaps more high functioning or um, if we are thinking it's you know ADHD or something like that they they may be able to tolerate it better um, there's lots of testing you can do with genetics and while it doesn't necessarily tell us you know current involvement of those genes it can again just be a way to feed you in the right direction so that you're not missing things mm. so there's, there's so many tools available to us and i think just again like having that conversation with families around where their financial expectation is what can they afford what's going to be too much and sometimes families are like if they have been going through it for a really long time they just want to do it all because they want some answers. They want to know what's happening and they want to be able to get that change. Hmm. Um, what about your questionnaire, your intake questionnaire? Do you ever look into, you know, the vocations of the parents or where they live, for instance, nearby pollution? Um, one of the things that I was really made aware of was lead, um, particularly yeah. in the mining towns, but also where there's older plumbing available. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in the intake questionnaire, I, with children and generally asking like, yes, about the child's previous health history, but you also want to know about mum's pregnancy. You want to know about the birth. You want to know about those early, you know, even days, weeks. And was there any intervention with say antibiotics or other medication? You want to know if it was a natural conception or if the parents um, conceived with IVF how long it took them to conceive, um, was there a lot of medication used throughout a pregnancy, were there any of those environmental pollutants, um, what is dad's occupation and mum's occupation. Um, yeah, those sorts of things are definitely relevant for children's health for sure. And I think that usually when, I mean, you want to know if someone's presenting acutely, obviously what's happened around the time that symptoms showed up. But a lot of the time when we're talking behavioral issues, mum and dad have kind of been aware of it from early on. Mm. And it's really hard to get anything diagnosed in young children. So often it's just parents' intuition telling them that something's not quite right. So talking more to that and, um, and then it is all of those sort of genetic, epigenetic factors and things way before the child was even conceived. I've got a double barrel question here, and that is how often do you need to treat not just the patient, the child, but indeed one of the family members, especially male family members, given that we're talking about epigenetics here? Do you find that there's a tendency for a male preponderance for these neurobehavioural issues? In the male children or male children the, and adults or male bloodline yeah look definitely we know statistically um male children are more likely to present with things like your yeah asd um however it's such a diverse range like you definitely do still get those behavioral disorders in 
female children. Um, and I would say in terms of treating the whole family, absolutely. I would find that often you end up with another family member as a patient. And even if maybe dad is showing some similar traits, whether, you know, on the spectrum themselves or possibly like ADD or ADHD in the past, more often I would have to say that I end up working with mum and this is a generalisation, but I think that's more around the fact if mum is the primary caregiver, um, ensuring that she's nurtured and is able to actually facilitate the changes that need to happen within the children. So absolutely, if you could have the whole family and work with everyone, that would be amazing. But sometimes I'm thinking of a, a couple of families where it is sort of that like quite obvious um, inherited behavioural traits or um, behavioural disorders that have perhaps come from dad, but dad's okay with it now and has, you know, a job and is kind of getting on with life and doing his things. So absolutely, if we can filter some healthier habits or dietary changes or whatever it might be into dad's life as well, that's great. But I'd say mum would be more of the priority if she's, you know, stressed out by the children's behaviour and having to deal with it day in, day out, and really needs to be the one to actually implement what um, you're prescribing. How often do you do you have to include or, or be cognizant of family dynamics, though? Um, and how often do you find... You just mentioned that the father has, you know, gotten a job and gotten on with life and learned mm -hmm. to live with it. How mm -hmm. often do you find that the uh, parent has mm -hmm. found their gift and mm -hmm. learned not just to accept it, but to, to indeed to use it for their benefit? Yeah. I don't know if I could speak to exactly how often, um, because certainly you see that not the case in some family situations. Um, but a lot of the time, I think sometimes our societal constructs and things like having to go to a mainstream school and having to, you know, sort of tick certain boxes throughout your childhood and adolescence, that's what really doesn't resonate with um, children or adults who perhaps do have, you know, whether it's not necessarily well, learning difficulties, we'd call it, but yeah just a different way of learning. So once you're kind of out of the system and you can make some better choices for yourself, whether that's, you know, working in a job that sees you being outside for most of the day or being your own boss so you're accountable to your own rules and regulations, that can really serve people. But at the same time, there's definitely those who would continue to, you know, kind of do the next step that society, society expects and be eating a you know very typical Western diet and maybe drinking alcohol and coffee and things like that that can continue to exacerbate some of those issues that were presenting in childhood. They might just look slightly different now in adulthood. So I think absolutely there's a chance that um, more than a chance of people finding their gift and being able to really utilize the way their brain works and the way their body works to serve them, um, but not always. And I think, um, I mean, where my clinic is, I do see a lot of families who are slightly lower socioeconomic sort of status and whether that's playing a role in terms of there's just a necessity to kind of put one foot in front of the other and so maybe not always having the level of education around diet or the ability to make better choices with their diet. So there can be some sort of situational things that see people still a little bit trapped within, um, yeah, whatever their original presenting condition was. But in terms of, sorry, sorry, no, you go on. I was just going to say in terms of um, working with family dynamics, that's 
always a consideration with children because not only uh, yes you've got the you know the pediatric patient in front of you but you've got siblings and that can play a really big role as well and even being you know if you've got a um, particularly high needs child being supportive of the siblings needs and how that can affect them in terms of like their emotional development or just what they're witnessing in their house or expectations of responsibility or where they might have to you know pick up slack where another child isn't able to um, and definitely parenting styles can be a really big thing and realizing that sometimes these children who do have additional needs don't necessarily resonate with um, particular parenting styles or very, very strong boundaries, or sometimes they need extra strong boundaries. So just navigating that within each unique family um, is really important. And that's where I have, you know, resources available. I often direct people to podcasts that I find really useful or, you know, experts in that sort of field. But oftentimes you do need to refer on maybe to a counsellor who can provide that expert level of care around those particular issues because it's so crucial in everybody's well-being when it's something that you're living day in and day out. So I think it's absolutely needs to be a consideration controversial question though uh, this actually yeah. happened to a, a dear friend of mine who uh, I'll, I'll preempt it by saying the father is quite shy and what mm. happened was the son was very shy at school quite withdrawn um, so on and so forth yeah. uh, this parent who is a, a loving caring balanced rational person obviously wondered about was there any issues took them to a paediatrician who almost immediately diagnosed a neurodevelopmental disorder. Mm. Uh, and I can still remember the conversation asking, do you think he might be just shy like his dad? Mm. And is that okay to be just shy? Can't we all just be different rather within yeah. this very limited box of normal? What yeah. happened from there, of course, is that he then went on to star in school plays and and mm. and and you know i say the word come out but but he he started to express himself more openly and he still has this shyness big yeah. deal it's not a diagnosis how often mm. do you find that people are caught in a box how often mm. do you find that people either you know they come to you with an issue and the box is denied but there really is a, mm. a box but yeah. a diagnosis that needs to be um acknowledged very, very often. I think families can be sometimes seeking one way or the other. So those who really don't want their children labelled as anything and those who are desperately looking for some support and for an answer so that they can, you know, kind of move forward and make a plan or whatever sort of resonates with them. And I think that's one of the benefits of working in the space that we do. So as a naturopath, as a nutritionist, I don't necessarily need that diagnosis in order to implement things that are going to be supportive. Um, it can help if there is a diagnosis and you obviously everyone's on board and agrees with it in terms of directing maybe your attention. But at the same time, if you're thoroughly taking a case history and finding out, okay, well, what are the pain points for 
this individual and this family day to day, then it doesn't need to be called anything. And, and with that example, if a child is shy, but it's not affecting their ability to perform at school and it's not affecting their ability to form social connections and it's not, you know, causing issues within the family, then do you necessarily need to address it? Um, I like, you know, I, I love things like astrology and looking at all different personality types. And I just think, I mean, personally, I would consider myself to be an introvert and I look at childhood Kate and I was so painfully shy and I don't think that was a disorder. I think that was just my personality and, you know, that's how I learned the world to kind of sit back and observe. Um, whereas other people are like, I'm just going to get out there and experience everything. And that's how I'm going to learn the world. So yeah, I do think, um, again that's that sort of navigating the family dynamic if there's maybe a parent who's really pushing for a diagnosis and you're feeling that it's not there again referring on possibly to someone like a counselor or at least having that conversation around okay well what does it mean to you to have a diagnosis how that how is that going to change your way forward um yeah. and finding out you know why maybe someone is so desperately wanting that um but just also supporting each child as an individual, whether there's a diagnosis or not, is um, that's really what we're here to do. Yeah, there's so much that we can discuss here, but it's, it'll be a five, ten hour podcast. But <laughs> so, so I will leave that there. But there, please, people chime in if you have issues, concerns, questions, please let us know on social media um, or indeed at um, info, forgive me, um, FX Medicine Web fxmedicine.com.au on our website or email us at info at fxmedicine.com.au. Ask us uh, and we'll get in touch with Kate, get your ideas and, um, you know, we'd love to create a forum on this. It's such an important topic. Certainly the social media out outlets, you know, what is it, Instagram, Bookface, you know the drill, old man. <laughs> um, uh, you mentioned acute before mm -hmm. and, and one of the acute... Um, conditions that is very slowly gaining a groundswell is pandas hmm. take us through this what are the what are the important hallmarks of pandas what is it yeah so pandas very cute sounding syndrome but it actually stands for pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with streptococcus um and i guess it's a relatively new thing um in the sort of health space. I mean, it's probably itself been around for a long time, but in terms of recognition and the hallmarks that I have to preface this by saying, I've actually not treated a patient with pandas um, to my knowledge, but um, it's something that I know, like there are a lot of clinicians who have seen patients with this. Essentially keep in mind, it's acute onset. So very, very acute onset and usually following something like, you know, a strep throat or like a very obvious infection. And what you'll see is this sudden and rapid change in behavior. So starting to show things like ticks and they can be either motor ticks or they can be like vocal ticks as well, um, OCD behaviors. And this is not just an exacerbation of previous OCD behaviours, it's completely new appearance of these behaviours. Um, also, personality changes can be quite common. So moving towards that sort of oppositional, you know, defiance disorder, um, lots of anxiety and hyperactivity. And I think all of those things can present on their own and not be pandas. 
Um, but the, so the thing to be looking out for is there's been an acute infection and then this acute and rapid change in behaviour um, and personality. Um, essentially, what they believe to be happening is this neuroinflammation. So as a result of, I guess, antibodies cross-reacting with the brain, you're getting um, from that streptococcus bacteria, you're then getting this neuroinflammation that's kind of causing this cascade of behavioral changes um, there is testing available although my understanding is there's not a really strong consensus around the accuracy of that testing whether the markers being tested are actually showing what we're believing them to show so there's profiles out there and i think i mean my motto around testing anyway is just because we can test something doesn't necessarily mean that we should um, with this sort of condition, I would typically refer on to like an integrative GP. So someone that you can work collaboratively with, because often it would require um, antibiotic treatment if there is that streptococcus bacteria present. And while we naturopathically would obviously often want to steer away from that, when you've got an acute presentation and a rapid decline, sometimes it's necessary. And then you can go back in with your natural therapies to kind of mop up any damage um, and obviously do supportive adjunct therapy at the same time. You also have um, PANS, which is Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. Um, and so the difference there is that it's not associated with streptococcus, but it can be the similar sort of presentation, but not specifically that organism present. And also with PANS, and I think with a lot of our syndromes, it's remembering really that's an umbrella that kind of goes over a number of different, um, you know, symptoms and complaints. It can still, it's going to present acutely and that's something to keep in mind, but it's, um, it can also overlap with a lot of other kind of conditions and it can be triggered, triggered by yes, infection, but also thinking environmental things. So whether that's things like mold or, um, it could be, you know, if there's been for some reason, a sudden heavy metal exposure or something like that. So I'd also within that subgroup consider maybe metabolic factors as well. Um, but again, I'd probably with either of these conditions be looking to get somebody else in. Um, yeah. So an integrative GP or a GP who's very open to working with you so that you yeah have a little bit more testing available if you need it um, and someone else to help navigate that. I'll give a call out to Dr. Elisa Song. Um, her yeah podcast that I did with her and her seminar series. Yeah. What a glowing light that woman is. She's yeah. incredible. What a beautiful, not just a mama, but an incredibly um, competent and compassionate practitioner. And she indeed yeah. is an expert in that. So I'll give a call out to her. If you want to learn more about pandas and pans, look up the FX Medicine podcast um, on the mm -hmm. FX Medicine website. Um, now I wanted to, oh, that's right. One of the hallmarks that I picked out from Elisa Song's um, podcast was uh, handwriting, uh, a change mm. in handwriting, which I thought was really interesting to do with fatigue. Is that right? Yeah, I guess to do with fatigue. So to do with more, not necessarily, um, you know, when someone complains that they're tired, but more that mitochondrial fatigue and the changes that can be happening metabolically mm. as a result of that neuroinflammation and subsequent, you know, cascade of biochemical changes that happens in the brain and then flow and effect through the body. Um, and I just want to add as well with um, whether pans, pandas, whatever the condition, we have to also be thinking, I think for us as naturopaths, well, why is this happening when we've got 
these we know these organisms are often opportunistic so really looking at that immune modulation and taking it a step earlier so yes you've got the acute presentation that needs to be dealt with but then asking well what could we have done to change that terrain because we know that someone else could have a streptococcus infection and not end up with pandas so what is it in that child that has allowed these um, organisms to be opportunistic and have this flow-on effect so i think that's where we can sort of swoop back in and do a lot of great work as well kate i love your work and i love the way you think because one of the you can tell a great naturopath because they're always asking why always <laughs> asking why and you said a very important thing about we always like to hone in we want to have the magic thing somebody mm -hmm. tell us somebody help us about the target to go for mm -hmm. but indeed you mentioned the important thing and that is why to the why why is the terrain changed so the mm -hmm. why and the terrain they're two of the most important words i think people skip over in our search mm -hmm. for a treatment you know a magic treatment Along that lines of treatment, let's go into it a little bit. So we've got ADHD first, and of course we start off with diet. We've got Julia Rucklidge, we've got Felice Jacker, both professors, incredible people, incredible work. Um, um, Felice Jacker has concentrated on diet. Julia Rucklidge has, has actually concentrated on the use of a multivitamin supplement. Both mm. have resulted in behavioural improvements in ADHD and, and other neuro uh, behavioural issues. Tell us how important, where do you start? What do you include? What are you cautious of? So diet always has to be a consideration um, and whether that's taking someone from a very typical Western diet and moving them more towards a whole foods diet or if you've got someone who's perhaps already at that whole foods point and moving them one step further, maybe towards that sort of gluten-free, casein-free or even looking at specific food intolerances, absolutely diet has to be a consideration. Um, considering things like blood sugar dysregulation and how that can often look like behavioral disorders. So if you've got a child who's perhaps having a sugary breakfast with a glass of juice and then maybe not eating all of their lunch at school and lunch at school is a honey sandwich or I'm, I'm painting the worst case scenario here. Um, like that that child will probably have crashes to their mood and then spurts of hyperactivity and not be able to concentrate and not be able to regulate their behavior so blood sugar dysregulation i think is really really important to consider um, but other factors as well like just general lifestyle and environmental factors how much time is the child spending outside in nature moving their bodies um, and really moving those big muscle groups as well um, how much time are they spending on screens how much time are they spending socializing with their friends or siblings or actually how much time are they spending with their parents or are they just jumping from school to after school activity to carer to something you know all these other things that kids can have going on um, even that over scheduling can be really really stressful for children and can also look like well they're not concentrating and then they're not going to bed and all of these things that they're so simple really to change um, although maybe not might not feel so simple for the family but it doesn't mean that there's a, a really overt diagnosis or five different supplements that you need to be giving you can actually just modify these more behavioral and lifestyle environmental things to really bring about some change um, in terms of type of diet, I guess 
Research is really tricky around diet for anyone, but particularly if we're thinking children because compliance is a big factor and also length of time in order to bring about significant change can be a factor as well. So for anyone trialing any sort of diet, we really like as an absolute, absolute minimum, you want a strict one month. And that's more from the point of view of food intolerances and antibodies being able to leave the system. But for you know, nutritional repletion and just that sort of, I guess, um, to see that full scope of how a diet can affect someone, I'd be thinking more like six months of being compliant. And within a six month window of a child's life, you're going to have birthday parties and you're going to have school camps and you're going to have like all these other barriers. Right that what was that? Sorry. Growth spurts as well. Growth spurts. Yeah. Huge amounts of change that can throw people off track. And I think keeping that motivation when it's can be really challenging for a parent to either be preparing the food or just getting their child to eat the food um, and children as well. I mean, I feel oftentimes children are quite malleable and they're very, very intelligent. So if you can work with a child directly and I actually I can't remember if I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but always speak to the child in however language you can portray the information. Try to get them on board because with their understanding, they will make changes and it might not be all of the changes that you want them to, but it doesn't have to then be such a battle at every meal time. Um, but in terms of diets that are generally recommended, so not a Western diet. I think we can all agree that that's pretty bad. <laughs> More of a, a Mediterranean style diet has um, some pretty good research around it, even moving more towards like a paleo type diet. Um, while I don't typically like to prescribe a diet to people, I think sometimes giving them that label just allows them to seek out better resources so they can find, you know, a paleo cookbook. And then, you know, as the clinician that it's going to be gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, grain-free, um, whole food based. So that's actually quite easy for families to adopt. Um, and definitely around more of the spectrum disorders, that gluten-free, casein-free diet seems to be the one that has the best research. Um, and whether that's, you know, um, just doing gluten-free, casein-free, or even looking more at your specific carbohydrate diet or your GAPS diet. Um, they're the ones that really stand out to me for that. Yeah. If you're looking at a children who's more severely autistic, a child, sorry, more severely autistic, um, that's probably the direction that I'd head there. You know, it's really interesting when you look at uh, research on things like uh, central fatty acid supplementation, mm -hmm. fish oil, um, and you look at the work that's been done, some of it by incredibly good researchers, some of it in Australia, like the Domino's trial, Maria McCready's. Um, there's others, forgive me, that was a learning, uh, 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 an infant one. But uh, there's when they do these supplements, it's almost like they're treating them as a drug, like mm. Ritalin or Amoxicillin, yes. and, and it's not. And, and I, I just mm. don't get why. Is it? Ignorance about the importance of diet, particularly, as you say, a caseo-gluten-free diet, where you, you know that the foundations just aren't there for any mm. sort of real improvement in neurobehavioural issues. So how, like, how do you treat the research? How do you read through this research that comes out mm. and says, no effect, no effect, no effect? Very much with a grain of salt <laughs> <laughs> because it's not, 
one thing and I guess that's again where we as naturopaths like we're working with the whole patient so the idea isn't to be mini doctors and giving one pill to fix the one symptom it's that you're treating the whole body and the whole person and I think with that actually it gives us so much more um freedom but it you can take away some of the stress because you don't have to have the one thing that's going to do the action because there's many ways that you can reach the end result and often just laying down those good foundations is going to get you there regardless of what supplements you add in over the top so i think it's important to obviously have an awareness of research and to know what patients might be coming up against as well because especially with peds they're often seeing a pediatrician or seeing a doctor or seeing some other specialist who you know they at every appointment they're going to say what are you taking and they say or xyz supplement so be prepared that your families are going to get some pushback possibly from um that their medical professionals who are in their team and obviously we have to respect and work with their um directions as well so that's where like no one's going to argue with oh i was told to stop eating processed and packaged food and instead serve more fruits and vegetables i don't think there's <clears throat> a practitioner in the world from whatever modality who would say that's advice <laughs> So, yeah, I do think that, I mean, research is challenging with natural therapies because oftentimes, and particularly with, as I said, like dietary interventions, there's too many moving parts and you actually can't control them all enough in order to get that good level of, um, you know, science in inverted commas. So I think, yeah, have an awareness of it and obviously not to be reckless then with what you're prescribing, mm -hmm. but just to realise that, it's not always telling the whole picture and what we're interested in as naturopaths is that whole picture. Um, yeah. Given, That's my given, <laughs> given, the, given that these families have got a heck of a lot of change to go through diet and lifestyle, possible medication changes, uh, learning issues at school, they've got to cope with the homework, the interaction with the teachers and the education departments, all of this sort of thing. Mm. What therefore, uh, forgive me. And what, one of the other things is significant financial cost. Mm -hmm. What, therefore, do you find are the best, I know I'll go here, best bang for buck type of supplements to look at? Mm -hmm. It's actually impossible to answer without, um, you know, because there's can such I, a can I, can I start off? Yeah. I remember one. And it was a fractionated product of American ginseng. Now, American what? ginseng is a, yeah. a more cooling ginseng than the Korean ginseng. Mm. Um, and so I like to refer it colloquially as a more mind ginseng. And mm. indeed, this fractionated product was specifically designed for ADD kids. Mm. And I remember, magic isn't a term I use, but significant. Um, yeah not just not just behavioral changes but acceptance and indeed a mm. desire to take it from the child mm. um, quite striking mm. um, and i guess where i'm going here is when do you know from what you prescribe where kids are accepting it and they're mm. getting a benefit because they themselves say mum can i have mm. my medicine i feel better on that or oh i forgot mm -hmm. my medicine i'm having a bad day that sort of thing yeah it's Sorry it's for really, questions. No, 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 it's okay. Um, 
So I guess it's going to be very dependent on the age of the child and their ability to report whether or not they themselves are feeling a change or whether it's just the observation from the parents. And I know that when they've done research, not necessarily on supplements, but on, um, you know, even like food preservatives or dietary interventions, sometimes there's a placebo effect on the parent side that the children actually have had behavioral improvements when actually nothing has changed. Um, so always mindful of who's reporting the, um, the changes, but look, if a family's feeling that there's a change, I don't care if it's a placebo or not. If it decreases that it's stress changed. in the family dynamic. Absolutely. Um, I guess back to your question around probably the things that I would most commonly prescribe definitely would be a fish oil or a cod liver oil. Um, I find that just having that, when we're thinking there's a lot of neuroinflammation going on, we know that it's just important for that cognitive development anyway, with also then that ability to downregulate some of that inflammation. Um, with the cod liver oil, you're getting the naturally occurring vitamin A and vitamin D. So all of that nice mucous membrane support, whether that's respiratory or whether that's gut um, and I think remembering that oftentimes children who do have behavioral disorders they have things going on in those other systems as well so bang for buck addressing multiple things at once um, oftentimes I'm finding children very deficient in zinc and that's obviously important for you know all of the neurotransmitter development but again that mucosal health and immune health and kind of yeah everything health so that's probably up there with one of my more common prescriptions um, and then just looking at those other areas so you know is the child having issues with sleep in which case maybe you are prescribing whether it's herbs or nutrients to be supportive of those sleep cycles alongside, again, those lifestyle changes of not having screen time before bed, having sufficient time in the sun. And sometimes it's even sending them out in the moon if possible to just like actually be able to regulate their melatonin. Um, if children are having more issues with anxiety or OCD, again, it might be delving more into your herbs or again, some nutrients to support just calming that nervous system. So yeah, there's, there's such a diverse range of things that we can call on, but I really, really think that you have to lay those foundations of having a good diet, despite if there's research saying, yes, fish oil has XYZ effect with no other change at all. I just feel that I, as a clinician, have not done my job if I haven't educated the family on how to just eat better and eventually I want to make myself redundant. I want people to have so much education around how to just eat well and live well that they don't need to come to me for appointments and they don't need supplementation. And depending on the severity of what the child's presenting with, that may or may not be possible. But I think giving them those tools so that they can implement a lot from their own home is better than just giving them one or two supplements that might have an effect, but then they're reliant on that for yeah. How it along. Yeah. Good old pumpkin seeds. I remember at least talking about this pumpkin seeds, pumpkin seeds. Yeah. Um, what about other common deficiencies though? Iron, for instance, you know, what is it? Eight, eight, twelve percent of, of kids are deficient in iron in yeah. iron. And we've got a a marginal to mild uh, deficiency of iodine, certainly across the eastern mm -hmm. seaboard of Australia. Uh, so much so that indeed it's recommended as a supplement. Not mm. just food, but a supplement, 150 micrograms of a supplement of iodine in pregnancy. Whereas yeah. folic acid is because the food's fortified, it's okay, you don't have to take a supplement. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting. People think it's folic acid that's 
um, more um, advocated in pregnancy. It's actually iodine because yeah. of the work of Professor Creswell Eastman, Eastman. So how do we address these? How do we, A, supplement if required, but B, get them to eat the right foods? And yeah. I've got to say, does it require potential testing here with at least iron? Depending on the presentation of the child. So I still would leave any blood testing at sort of the bottom of my list if I possibly can. I mean, with iron, the typical things that you'd look out for. So the common complaints that we would have as adults if we had low iron. So fatigue, shortness of breath, you can start to look quite pale or have those dark circles under your eyes. In children, you can also see um, uh, delayed growth. So if you've got a child who's not yeah, growing appropriately or there seems to have been some sort of stop to when they're growing um, definitely iron can be a big part of that and I think again coming back to a quite detailed case history when you're taking a look at their diet and what they're eating you as a clinician will see like are they actually ingesting any or enough iron in their diet not then I was about to say that's not even taking into consideration malabsorption. So what's going on in their gut? So I think with iron supplementation in children, I would confidently prescribe for a while and just see if some of those things change before feeling that it's necessary to do a test unless it felt really clinically indicated because getting a child to a toxic level of iron is going to be quite a challenge. So Again, I think I've said it before, just sort of starting low and slow and you can be conservative in dosing and children do tend to respond quite well. And obviously then that gives you room to move. Um, you asked the question of how to get the supplements into children um, and definitely have to give a shout out to the guys at Kingsway Compounding. Um, they are so awesome to work with across the board for yeah. all conditions. Yeah. But with paediatrics, um, you know, there's certain nutrients that we can do transdermally, iron being one of them. So oh. if you've got a child who, you know, obviously maybe can't swallow a tablet or capsule and then won't tolerate the taste of things that are a powder or a liquid, then looking at what you can do as transdermals. Um, I'm not an expert in compounding, but anytime I have a question, if you call George or Carl or Floris or anyone at Kingsway, they are so more than happy to generously give away their time and knowledge and really guide you on how best to support your patient. And there's lots that they can do as well with um, not just the transdermals, but even compounding, you know, powders that have specific flavors that might be more palatable for the children. Um, they're just, yeah, total experts, so generous, so lovely. So I wholeheartedly support them and would really um, yeah, recommend working with them if you're trying to supplement for kids and they can't take what's commercially available. Yeah, I'll double that shout out. I did a really interesting <laughs> interview with uh, Carl Landers years ago now, and he blew my mind with what I mm. thought, there's no way that you could absorb iron and vitamin yeah. C through the skin. And you know, actually you can. So yeah. it really opened my eyes to another way that we can potentially supplement, particularly if you say, as you say, that there may be refusal or difficulty in taking mm oral supplements. I think it's a yeah. fantastic idea. One that certainly needs more For parents as well, you know, your children are having a bath or a shower and before they get dressed, they can just apply the transdermal cream over the body. Usually it just has to be in areas where there's not a lot of body hair, but if you're thinking a child, that's pretty much like head to toe, you can put it anywhere. So it's, yeah, it's a really, really good way to work. Um, same goes with oral supplementation, how much of it's actually making its way into the bloodstream. 
not entirely sure, but we're going to see changes to behavior, changes to, you know, nutrient levels if we are doing pathology testing. And for me, like that's, that's yeah. what we want to see. Yeah. Well, you know, iron, iron, there's very good consensus on levels. Mm. Um, so at, at least with iron, we can pretty easily test it with a blood test. I get it. Um, yeah. Iodine, there's some controversy, but urinary iodine. I guess the caveat with both of them, one with iron is hereditary hemochromatosis, but their presentation would be different. They're, instead yeah. of a paleness, they tend to have a copper skin, certainly in adults. The mm. fatigue, though, can happen with both under or over. Um, mm. um, and I, I guess the other salient point to make to anybody listening is um, that any supplement has or can be toxic. So always get guidance from a, a naturopathic practitioner or somebody um, suitably qualified. So regards to um, to other nutrients, you know, things like magnesium and tryptophan. I found mm. tryptophan was a funny one where higher doses actually help relaxation. Is that right? Mm. Yeah. And I think with, I mean, with nutrients and well, I guess any supplementation in children, I probably do sit more on the concept on the conservative side, unless really clinically indicated. And so that's actually really good. I think as a clinician, because you can just start with your basics and you don't have to be, as we were saying with the pandas and the pans, you don't have to find the one thing or have the really, you know, exotic diagnosis or exotic nutrient you can just start with the basics and get amazing change um, glycine another one that i find really useful in children tastes really good for children as well and can really help with just sort of calming the nervous system um, supporting that neurotransmitter development um, magnesium absolutely and there's so many ways again you can do magnesium transdermally or even getting children to do baths whether that's in epsom salts or magnesium um, flakes so the magnesium chloride apparently slightly better absorbed but if mom has a packet of epsom salts in the cupboard go with it um, i do always warn patients to make sure it's well um uh, uh what's the word not diluted but it's actually been a like taken up by the water and you're not popping a child in and sitting directly on the salts because that can burn their poor little behind. Yeah. Um, but some of these ways, like, again, it's just making things easy so that parents don't feel like they've got a million things that they've got to do and got to change. And it's how can you integrate it with day-to-day -day behaviors so that you're getting some change without the overwhelm. Do you find sometimes with that magnesium chloride though, you get the itchy skin? Have you ever seen it? Yes, I have. Um, but I think, again, just diluting it even further. And sometimes people do become accustomed to it. it if it's causing a reaction, like an, you know, a prolonged reaction, then just avoid it. But otherwise, um, yeah, oftentimes it does get less over time or just dilute it further. So you're getting some benefit. Again, is that measurable? Couldn't say for sure, but some benefit is better than no benefit at all in, in my mind. Again, I say we could talk for hours, but just as the last type of, of comment, helping the child to improve their resilience because these children are going to come up against more hurdles and roadblocks in their life. They need to learn resilience rather than I've got a broken pencil. Yeah. Don't <laughs> sharpen it, you know, um, which yeah. actually happens to my wife in class. Mm. How, do, how do you and what do you teach kids particularly mm. neurodevelopmental issues how do you teach them about resilience what they have to learn 
mm. preparing them for, for adulthood? Yeah, I think it's actually from where I'm sitting and my role as the clinician, like definitely forming that rapport with a child is really important so that they feel they can come to appointments and be open and, you know, enjoy sitting there and chatting with you. But a lot of that directive does come from the parents. So again, whether that's referring on to someone like a, a counsellor or a psychologist who can work with the family, um, there's some amazing parenting resources out there. And sometimes that can be, you know, I have my personal parenting philosophies and that doesn't always sit well with families who maybe have a slightly stricter um, parenting style. But I think just exposing people to different ways of doing things and then getting the parents to acknowledge that okay this is my child i love them they're unique they usually do like love them anyway but it's more supporting who they are and how they are rather than getting them to try to fit a mold and i think it's just with that acceptance and if that acceptance can filter in from all different areas of your life that will help to promote resilience um, there's some great uh, so Janet Lansbury is one of the um, experts that I would refer people to for like, she has an amazing podcast. She's got books all around basically children of any age from newborns to teens um, behaviors and how we can support them. And looking again, asking that question of why, like what does this behavior actually mean? Because sometimes what children are expressing is not actually what's going on. It's just a symptom of the million things that they've been bottling up inside. Um, even looking at, there's a, a great book called The Whole Brain Child, which talks very much about how we can support our children to integrate those left and right brain, you know, thoughts versus feelings or that sort of rational versus emotional. But when we're talking children and then particularly if we're layering children with additional needs, they don't actually have the ability to make those connections themselves or to fully understand. So that's where the parents or whoever the primary people in those, um, the child's life is really has an amazing opportunity to support them so that they do become resilient and confident and are able to sharpen their own pencil or just, you know, deal better with whether it's their health or their schooling or their peers or all of the things that pop up when you're a child and through your adolescence. Um, and I think we, we can be a part of that team as natural health practitioners. Um, but yeah, so much of it filters down from those who are interacting with them day to day. Or indeed to find their gift. I remember a story just recently, a um, friend of mine who has a child with neurodevelopmental issues or neurobehavioral mm -hmm. issues. Um, who is who is so insightful into his own behaviour that he now chooses, he goes, I want to delay my medicine, but then I'll take it at play lunch sort of thing. Um, uh, but to find their gift, it was really interesting. I asked her about, I asked the mum about if he had, if music was something and she went, uh-uh, no way, uh-uh. Tone deaf, no rhythm, gone, nothing. <laughs> but drawing, ah. You know, mm. it's real, and we just have to be open to be able to find their gift, to give them exposure to different um, outlets for their expression, I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think just like all of us, we all want to be accepted for who we are and not feel that we have to to change ourselves to fit in. So yeah, just allowing that to filter down to our little people. Um, and that's accepting that they have a full spectrum of emotions. And absolutely, if they start tipping outside you know, a normal or an appropriate kind of realm, then yes, that becomes something that you want to address more clinically. But yeah, I think just having that love and acceptance, we, we would all do better from a bit more <laughs> love and acceptance in our lives. Kate Holm, indeed, what you say is so true, the love and acceptance that we all need to embrace and shine from. So I can't thank you enough for taking us through your insight today with neurodevelopmental issues in kids. And indeed, you will never, ever be redundant because of your ethics. You have such a beautiful, responsible, compassionate spirit. I really admire you. Well done, and thank you so much for taking us through this today on FX Medicine. Thanks for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew whitfield Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.